0: Section Thirteen of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book I Chapter Thirteen: George the Second and Queen Caroline. Both the first Georges were men of mature age when they came to the throne. George the First was fifty-four. George the Second, forty-four. The latter had been born in Hanover in 1683, had been brought up and educated as any other German prince might have been, for he had no expectation of the Crown of England as his inheritance, as he was nearly a man when the act of settlement was passed. Of course he was trained to be a soldier, all German princes were. He had the special advantage of serving under the great Duke of Marlborough and had distinguished himself for personal bravery at the Battle of Audenarda, where perhaps some English officers, with a thought for the future, turned their eyes toward the conduct of the Electoral Prince of Hanover. Some four years before the death of Queen Anne, the Electoral Prince was made Duke of Cambridge, but the honor was titular only. The Queen, afraid lest in any way the spirit of worshipping the rising sun should spread, was very much opposed to the new duke's taking his seat in the House of Lords. On the accession of George I, his eldest son became Prince of Wales, and by a strange fate, which seemed to affect the early Hanoverian kings, the son was always at variance with the father. The new king was in person short, and like many short men, proud and touchy. The public called him dapper. A word which fits the description of him so well, that one historian, Carlyle, always speaks of Dapper George. He was also very precise, his notion of soldiering requiring a strict attention to small details of drill and uniforms, whilst his mind always found room for minute questions of etiquette, for which he seems to have had the taste of a gentleman usher. The Jacobite nickname for him was the Captain and he would certainly have made a better captain than a general. There is no doubt about his bravery, nor about his love of justice and desire to do what was best for his kingdom and subjects. Though as a matter of fact, during his reign, the English were left to govern themselves and did not require much governing, George thought himself a heaven-born ruler. This feeling led him often to give free rein to the dictates of a violent temper and sometimes to make himself very ridiculous. It is recorded that when he was a little boy, he had a fight with his cousin Frederick William, afterwards his brother-in-law, the second king of Prussia and father of Frederick the Great. The future king of Prussia was also of arbitrary and violent temper, but with more capacity, and, as an absolute monarch, with greater opportunities of using it. The two cousins had many instincts in common, such as the taste for trifles and details, especially when connected with soldiers. But perhaps just on account of their similarity in tempers and tastes, they hated each other savagely, and the boyish battle in which Frederick William gave his cousin George a bloody nose was an afterlife, followed by a definite challenge to fight a duel. This was some two years after George II's accession and the reason some mere trifle that diplomacy could not at once settle. inflamed by long previous resentment, the king of Prussia was the challenger, and the ministers on either side had difficulty in preventing the ridiculous spectacle of the two kings fencing with each other. They had nicknames for each other which Carlyle thus translates. My brother the play actor was the name for the king of England in the mouth of his brother of Prussia. Arch sandbox beetle of the Holy Roman Empire was the retaliation the one appeared all form and ceremony, the other a pedantic insister upon trifles. One curiously unkingly failing his majesty had avarice, an avarice not on the large scale as such as might be worthier of a king. Henry the Seventh was said to suffer from avarice, but his was a careful husbanding of the kingdom's resources especially of treasure in its coffers, from the conviction that a kingdom with its coffers full is stronger than a kingdom with an empty treasury. But George's avarice was rather that of a petty tradesman shown in a desire to handle and count money. If, said a bold lady of the court once to him, if you count your money once more, I will leave the room. George I could not speak English at all, and had to transact business with his English ministers, except with one who, contrary to the usual custom, had learnt German, through the medium of indifferent Latin. George II had an advantage over his father in that he could speak English fluently, though, as courtiers remarked behind his back, not very grammatically, and with a strong German accent. According to an eminent Lord Chamberlain of the period, the language of the court, of which he gives numerous specimens, consisted of French and broken English, helped out with an occasional word of German. The news of his father's death in Germany was brought to the new king by Sir Robert Walpole, the prime minister whom the king hated, if for no other reason, because he had been his father's prime minister. That is von big lie, is reported to have been the new king's answer to the news. The death of a sovereign nowadays would not of necessity cause a change of a ministry. But George II practically dismissed Walpole by naming another to draw up the declaration which is made on his accession by a new king. The politician selected, who was the speaker of the House of Commons, was so incompetent that he asked assistance from the very man whom he was superseding. Walpole courteously rendered the assistance and in a few days he was reinstated in office. In truth, Walpole had a very powerful ally in the new queen, who far rather than the king helped Walpole to govern England during the next ten years. Caroline of Ansbach was probably the most remarkable queen consort in English history. Left an orphan and a portionless princess at an early age, she was brought up at the court of Prussia but her beauty, her grace, and her mental gifts were such that many princes sought her hand in marriage. The emperor himself was amongst her suitors, and it must be remembered to Caroline's credit that she declined the honor solely because it would be necessary for her to change her religion. Possibly the suggestion would not even be made in the present day, but then it was not every princess who would entertain so decided a religious scruple for the wife that the emperor succeeded in winning was a Protestant princess who went through the form of being converted in order to accept his offer. Caroline was both clever and wise. She could display sweet temper and be pleasant and agreeable to all around, but also her tongue could give utterance to the sharpest sarcasms and bitterest invectives. Her father-in-law, the late king, had latterly no name for her but she-devil. There was not full scope for Caroline to show wisdom until she became queen consort. Though before hostile to Walpole, she saw at once that he alone was then suited to be prime minister, and suppressing all feeling of personal resentment, henceforward she became his friend and ally. The queen combined a statesman's grasp of public questions with a woman's tact. By skillfully choosing opportunities and arguments, she instilled notions into the king's mind in such a subtle way that he thought they were his own, and thus she was wont to govern the king without his knowing that he was being governed. So completely did the queen possess the highest art, that of concealing art, that George would even boast that other kings had been ruled by their wives or favorites, whereas he was every inch a king yet the public had formed a truer estimate of the position. Ballad of the day runs. You may strut, Dapper George, but twill all be in vain. We know tis Queen Caroline, not you that reign. You govern no more than Don Philip of Spain. Then, if you would have us fall down and adore you, lock up your fat spouse as your dad did before you. Against Queen Caroline's good qualities we must put the fact that her language if witty was often coarse and indelicate, and though it is some little excuse to say that the time was coarse, we should have expected Caroline with her real superiority of mind to have been better, not worse than her age. So determined was she to govern the king that she displayed no jealousy whatever, even when he made love to other women. So invariable was her rule, that no request made by the king was ever to be refused by her, that when she was suffering terrible agonies from gout in her feet, she would dip her whole leg into cold water in order to go out and walk with him. This had the effect of driving the gout in, but at a great cost to her system, and there is no doubt that the practice hastened her death. In such conduct, there is something heroic. Queen Caroline was a student of philosophy and delighted in theological controversy. The ecclesiastical patronage in England was considerably influenced by her. The promotion of Bishop Butler, the author of the analogy, stands to her credit. It is usual to speak contemptuously of George II and especially of his indifference to literature and culture. It is only fair to remember that, acting upon the advice of his Hanoverian ministers, he was the founder of the University of Göttingen, which is properly called after him Georgia Augusta. For a long time, Göttingen held the highest rank among the universities of Germany, and though not now the first, is still of considerable importance. The university was founded in order to prevent the Hanoverians going elsewhere for university education— but to prevent the deadening influence of the clergy, those who drew up the scheme of the foundation determined to keep the appointment of all professors in the hands of the government. Absolute freedom was granted to professors in their lectures and to students in their selection of courses. The ministers made it their pride to secure the very best men for the chairs, and during the eighteenth century, some of the most eminent writers in Germany, in each department of knowledge, were amongst the Göttingen professors. End of Section 13